0: A long time ago, well, several years ago anyway, I was afraid. I was afraid of studying the book of Hebrews. Now, I had sort of studied the book of Hebrews because I went to seminary for four years and in seminary, of course, we had to study the whole Bible including the book of Hebrews. So I had a class where we went through the book of Hebrews. The reason I was afraid was I knew enough about the book of Hebrews to know the book of Hebrews is uh, hard to study. It's tricky. It's got some stuff in it that's difficult and controversial. And different scholars take different points of view on different texts in the book of Hebrews. Now, they do that all over the whole Bible, but especially so in the book of Hebrews. This is getting dangerous. Give me one second here. So I was kind of afraid of the book of Hebrews. And that is why I decided I needed to teach it. Because when I committed myself to teaching it, and by the way, this was many years ago before the first time I taught the book of Hebrews, because I figured out that if I commit myself to teaching it, then I'll have to study it. And why did I think that was so necessary? What's the point of, why do we need to know what's in the book of Hebrews? Well, I mean, the obvious answer to that question is, well, it's the word of God, so of course you need to know it. It's in the scriptures. There's nothing in the scriptures that isn't useful, that isn't profitable for the equipping of the people of God. Yeah, so there was that. And here's something unique about the book of Hebrews, I believe. And something, the reason I'm talking about this now is something we'll see in the particular passage of the book of Hebrews we're going to look at today. And that is the book of Hebrews brings the whole Bible together in a unique way. It is learning the book of Hebrews that you learn to see Christ in Moses. I don't mean the man Moses, I mean the writings of Moses. You know Jesus said this outrageous thing. He said to these guys, well, if you believed Moses, you'd believe me because Moses wrote about me. Do you know how it is that Moses wrote about Jesus? That the things written by Moses, the Ten Commandments, the Exodus, the Book of Numbers, Leviticus, the priesthood, the, the book of Genesis. Do you know how all that's about Jesus? That's what Jesus said. All of it's about him. In fact, we read in the book of Hebrews at the very beginning that all the prophets ultimately are about Christ. You could read that also in First or 2 Peter. I can't remember which. That the prophets sometimes wondered what on earth this was about. It's about Christ. The whole Bible is about Christ, and Hebrews shows you how. In fact, according to the book of Hebrews, everything is about Christ. I'm going to say that again because sometimes it's hard for us to get our heads around it. According to the scripture, everything is about Christ. That's what we read in chapter 1. God spoke in many ways at various times in the old days through the prophets, all different ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. In his Son. And then he goes on to describe that son whom he appointed the heir of many things. Uh, That's not what it says. It doesn't say Jesus inherits a lot of things. It says Jesus inherits all things. Okay, everything is about him through whom also he created the world. So he's the thing that causes all things, and he's the thing for which all things are caused. You could read that in the first chapter of Colossians as well, that he might come to have first place in everything, not just most things, everything. In Philippians, every knee will bow and every tongue confess, And then he goes on to describe where all those knees and tongues are. In heaven, on the earth, under the earth. Well, that's just a way of saying, really, I mean all of them. Wherever they might be. Heaven, earth, under the earth is a description of the whole universe. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Everything's about him. Everything through whom he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. You know, scientists try to figure out what is the nature of the force that holds everything together. What does gravity have in common with electromagnetism? What's the universal law?
1: Christ holds all
0: things together by the word of his power. If they could have, if they had an instrument that could detect it, they would detect him. They assume because we don't have an instrument that can detect him, then he must not exist. That's so stupid. I can't believe it. It's just. It's just like saying, well, my radio doesn't tune to that station, so that station must not be there. He's the thing that causes all things, that is the conclusion of all things, that carries all things from the cause to the conclusion. And he has made purification of sins and sat down at the right hand of God. Everything's about him. This is kind of what we were saying when we said the last couple of weeks, he is the most important thing, period. We always put that question, we make that question a personal question. Is he most important to you? Well, you might have it wrong, but he is most important to you and to everyone, and to everything. He's most important, period. He is the thing. He's the eternal Son, God Almighty. Now, in the book of Hebrews, that message of the whole of Scripture and creation and everything is clarified and Hebrews brings together the whole Bible in a unique way. You can see that in the text we're looking at today. If you have a Bible, you should look at it, Hebrews chapter 2. If you have a bulletin, I printed this passage in the bulletin for you. Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 9. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, I think just reading this text, you might Realize why someone might be afraid to study the book of Hebrews. Like, what on earth? There's a lot of stuff in there. We already had a discussion in our Sunday school class. By the way, Sunday school, we discuss the day's message after church every Sunday. If you're invited. Uh, the we had this discussion. What is it, What is lower than the angels? Are human beings lower? Who's are angels? Superior to humans, or humans superior to angels? What? Well, it was quite an involved discussion. I don't think we figured it out exactly, but we did talk about it. It's complicated. It's tricky. It's a yes and a no. So, what's this about? Well, he says it has been testified somewhere. We know where. We just read it. Psalm eight. Psalm 8, which we just read, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What is man that you are concerned about him? Well, what we're talking about in Psalm 8 is a reflection of David on Genesis 1. What David is doing in Psalm 8 is writing a reflective poem, a song, if you will, to the majesty of God that is revealed in the creation of man. The psalm is a comment on Genesis, and Hebrews is a comment on the psalm. See how the whole Bible gets sort of tied together here? And what's it about, Psalm 8? Well, it's about the greatness of God, O Lord, our Lord. Yahweh, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. In all the earth. It is about the glory of God in creation. I mean, think of it. Go outside Look at the stars, well, when it gets dark. Look at the stars.
1: Majesty.
0: He's the creator of everything you see, including you. No matter how far you look or how close you look. We keep looking closer and closer and finding tinier and tinier things. The greatness of God is displayed in creation. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you've set in place, who are we that you are mindful of us? Well, that's a good question. So the second thing that that David writes here is about the apparent insignificance of humanity relative to nature. Have you ever stood on the on a big mountain, or uh, maybe people visit the Grand Canyon and they stand there on the edge of this of this canyon that's vast. Except, you know, it's only a spot on the earth which is tiny next to the sun, which is tiny next to the next, the, you know, how far it is to the next one. But we stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon and we go... <gasps> People call it a religious experience. I used to like watching movies about surfing because whenever you see a movie about surfing, all the surfers talk about how spiritual surfing is. And they're right. It is. You get on that little wooden plank and you stand up and you... Play on the surface of the ocean and it is vast in its power. You see, these have you seen these videos? These guys surfing on waves that are three times the size of this building, it's massive and tiny. And those guys talk about what a spiritual thing it is to enjoy playing on that overwhelming power. That is spiritual. They have their ear right up to the speaker of God's creation. They just don't recognize whose voice it is, most of them. But we do. How majestic
1: is your name in all the earth.
0: When I look at the heavens, the stars, the moon, the work of your fingers, I think, who am I that you care for me? But he answers that question. (laughs) He says, What is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet, you've made him a little lower than the angels, the heavenly beings. Crowned him with glory. Crowned him with glory. Who? Humanity is who this psalm is about. Crowned him with glory. And honor. Given him dominion over the works of your hands. Put all things under his feet, sheep, oxen, beasts of the field, birds of the heavens, fish of the sea, whatever passes along in the paths of the sea are under the dominion of man. So we see the Glory of God in this seemingly insignificant thing. We compare, I look at the Great Canyon or the stars or the ocean and I think, oh, I am small. But humanity is crowned with glory, honor, and given dominion over all creation. Man is the king of nature. This goes right back to Genesis chapter one, right? Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And what's he say to Adam and Eve? Humanity in his image Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over fish of the sea, birds of the heavens, every living thing that moves on the earth. That's what David is reflecting on in the psalm. He says when God announced his intention, he says, let us make man in our image. If you want to know how you're crowned with glory and honor, that is the answer to the question. You're made in the image of God. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, livestock over all the earth, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So we see here in the psalm, the crown of glory and majesty, the image of God. Man is or is to be. God announced his intention to make man this, have dominion and to make man the revelation of God in creation. Image, majestic, majestic. Now I look around, I look at people, I look in the mirror and I think, "Eh. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think majestic. Now I'm not as good looking as David was, so maybe that's the deal. Majestic. Plus, he was an actual king, so, you know, he could call himself your majesty. But he doesn't. He calls God your majesty. And he calls himself the reflection of that majesty. So, what you have in Psalm 8 is this meditation of the glory of God reflected in humanity. Now, I have, to, I have to stop right here for a second, because Angelo snuck up out here. So cl- give Angelo another hand. He wasn't here when you. <laughs> Congratulations. Bon voyage. All right. Back to the subject at hand. Humanity is, uh, is created in the image of God, crowned with majesty, crowned with honor, crowned with glory. How's it going? Yeah, I look in the mirror and I don't go, ah, oh, majesty. I look at the creation and the effect of humanity on it. And I think, yeah, well, that's a certain kind of dominion, but I'm not sure it's going real well. Because what happened? Adam failed. That's what happened. He failed to trust in the word of God, and he trusted in his own judgment over the judgment of God, and he sank everything the whole creation broke the day that Adam and Eve sinned and in Adam we all collapsed and so the glory is even harder to see the image is marred so We've got to talk about the book of Hebrews, though, because Hebrews says something, well, we can't say new, but it's about someone else. You see, there's the first Adam, and there's the last Adam. And where the first Adam failed, the last Adam succeeded where the first Adam sinned, the last Adam lived in perfect righteousness. And so we see in Hebrews, we we should ask the question, in Hebrews, who is Psalm 8 about? In Psalm 8, when David's writing, it's about everyone, all of us. In Hebrews... It's about one of us, and that is Jesus. We can tell that, right? He says, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we don't see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely... Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So who's the subject of Psalm 8 in a unique way? Jesus is. Jesus is. But you know... Psalm 8 can't be about Jesus if Jesus is not a man. Psalm 8 is not about the eternal son. Psalm 8 is about the incarnate son. It's very important that as we read through the book of Hebrews that we notice the emphasis in the book of Hebrews is on the humanity of Christ and not solely on his deity, though both are fully represented. So what we have in Hebrews is, Psalm 8 applied to Jesus, where the majesty of God is revealed in humanity. When God says, let us make man in our image, Colossians says, he is the image of the invisible God. When Colossians says that, it's not telling you that he's God, it's telling you that he's man. Perfect human being. If you need a model for what it means to be a person, a human being, he's the model. He's the perfect one. He's one of us, as we are supposed to be. Well, and more. He's the one of us that can give his life a sacrifice for sin. When's the majesty of God revealed in humanity? When is that most fully realized? When is that realized at all in him? Now, here we see it in the world to come. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, the future. We're still waiting for the full realization of this fact the full dominion of humanity. How will the full dominion of humanity be realized? By you and me? By Him. By us, only in him. So in the world to come, already with his exaltation, where is he now? Seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. So it's already this kingdom, this rule by a human being, already and yet to come. We're still waiting for the full realization. How is the majesty of God revealed in humanity? How is the majesty of God revealed in humanity? It's quite a story. The eternal son of God becomes human. The incarnation. The eternal Son of God lives as a human in perfect obedience to God, the Father, in perfect righteousness from the day he's born until now. He lives in perfect righteousness. He lived the life God commands in humanity. Did so perfectly and then he exhibits the glory of God in his humiliation Jesus said it it's the strangest thing it is really hard to think of he said the time has come for the son of man to be glorified and he was talking about the cross He talks about the Son of Man being lifted up. The Son of Man was lifted up when he was put down. Do you see the humble glory? This is the sort of God we have. We have majestic humility. (laughs) Majestic humility in God, the Son, in the man, Jesus. You can't think of this. We don't think of humility as majestic because we're upside down. But humility in Christ is the majesty of God in the glorious salvation he provides in his Son. We see the majesty of God in his death, in his resurrection, in his exaltation, in his fully realized lordship, which is still to come. In his somewhat realized lordship in our own lives. This is uh, reminiscent of Philippians chapter 2, you know, where he humbles himself and humbles himself and humbles himself to the point of death. He humbles himself to be one of us. And then among us, he puts himself under. He humbles himself among us all the way to the cross. And so God has highly exalted him. It's glorious humility in Christ. That's what we see. In the book of Hebrews, the psalm applied to Jesus that greatness, that glory which is exhibited in lowliness.
1: So what does this
0: have to do with us? Well, first of all, Jesus is human like you. He is an exhibit of what humans are intended to be. Now, you can't be it except in union with him, by faith in him, by the active ministry of the Spirit in your heart, soul. But in him,
1: you are. And will be.
0: And you also will be resurrected. The second thing we would notice in this text is that Jesus is the pioneer of redeeming faith. Jesus the man, you remember this from John, right? He's always going around saying, I always do what the Father gives me to do. I always act in utter trust and reliance upon God. He's talking about how he behaves as a human being. He trusts God. This is where Adam failed. It wasn't just the act of breaking the law of God that Adam failed, it was in in deciding his judgment was to be trusted over God's. Jesus doesn't do that, he always trusts God. He always obeys the word of God, the commandments of God, the very day-to-day direction of God in his life. He's the pioneer of redeeming faith. How does this faith go? It goes all the way. So that on the night he's crucified he struggles and trusts God. And we read right here in the book of Hebrews, for the joy set before him he was trusting God. He, for the joy set before him he Endured the cross. He died. He laid down his life. It's hard to, well, I don't believe you can imagine a greater faith. A greater faith. He is utterly and completely in God's hands in that.
1: If God doesn't act, he's
0: done. He completely trusts God. He's the pioneer of redeeming faith. He's the pioneer of resurrection. Colossians says he's the firstborn of the resurrection. In Jesus, in Jesus, we realize our full humanity. Bearing God's image,
1: ruling God's creation.
0: in Jesus we will realize those things so how's it going to be when you look in the mirror now is it eh, well that's, that's not unreasonable it's not I mean, I can look in the mirror and go, eh, there's nothing special here. I could say, well, I'm unique. But, eh. But if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new in him. So I can also look in the mirror and see a human being in Christ. Do you know that a human being in Christ is the most significant created thing? I'm going to say that again because you don't know. A human being in Christ is the most significant created thing. It is the purpose for which all other created things have been created. We know that because Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God himself, is a human being. And he is most important of all. And if I am in him, I am crowned with glory and honor. I have dominion over the creation. I will rule with him in the day to come. I will experience his resurrection. And in fact, in some sense, already have. But not like I will one day. But do you know that a human being is a huge deal, the hugest, that's not a word. Now, this is not a source of pride. It's not even a source of pride in Jesus. If any one of us human beings has a reason to be proud of himself, it's Jesus, and he's not. He's humble. He's the exhibition of Psalm 8. He's the the majestic humility exhibited. He's exalted, but he didn't exalt himself. He doesn't exalt himself. He humbles himself, and God exalts him. He is the great and glorious eternal Son of God. And that is not a source of pride in him. That does not cause him to do what Lucifer did and said, if only I could displace. No. Of course, he doesn't need to displace God. He is God. But Satan tempted him. He said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you just bow down to me. No. No. Adam did. He didn't. This is not a source of pride. It's a shining of the glory of God in you if you are in Christ, and you will not believe what it will look like one day. It's a shining of the glory of God in humility. So this association with Christ is not a, is not a thing to be proud of, but it's the power to humble yourself. This just is mind-blowing. This is like 2 uh, Corinthians chapter 4. You remember this text? 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's about the glory of God in the face of Christ. Paul writes, even if our, this is uh, 2 Corinthians four, three, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in their case, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light, the light of the gospel, the light of the good news, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay (laughs) to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It's the same thing. You know, in your union with Christ, in your appropriation, I don't know if that's the best word, of full humanity in Christ, you have the opportunity to shine the majestic humility of God. To Be a person who loves others, who lives sacrificially for the sake of the benefit of someone else. This is a lot to get your mind around. It's a lot to get your heart into. But the Spirit of God will work in us and will not fail to produce this result, so that we will become the realization of David's psalm as Jesus was. Now he fulfills it in a unique way. None of us die for anyone's sins. He's the eternal son made flesh to lead us back to our full humanity. Wow. Wow. As we come to the table, we remember these things. That the sacrifice of Christ, we read about here, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In the death of Christ, we are made alive again. And that is what we come to remember at the table this morning. Father, we give you thanks for this amazing love that you've shown to us in Christ, Lord we pray that we would become better reflectors of it, that you would help us, that the Spirit of God would work in us so that these things might be more and more real in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.